Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Welcome to Rule of Three, a podcast about comedy. I'm Jason Hazley. And I'm Joel Morris. And as usual, we're joined by someone who makes comedy to talk about something funny that they love. By taking it apart, maybe we'll learn something about how comedy works. Or we'll just quote bits from it and giggle until we're finished. Both approaches are valid. Our special guest today is the magnificent Jim Field Smith. Hello. 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 That was a magnificent hello there. Thank you. You, you are a director of things. I am. But you, you come from a, a very solidly sort of performative and writing comedy background and then went... You were the one of the gang who went off to get behind the camera. The last of the gang to die. Yeah. Um, the first of the gang to die. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I was well, I was the first one to go, I should stop acting. Um, the <laughs> Did others, someone say that to you? The others have all continued. Because um, you were in Dutch Elm with Dan Skinner and Rufus Jones and George. And yes, and Steve. Steve. Yes, um, and I, which in in itself was sort of a a sort of happy accident in a way, because it wasn't like I was desperate to perform either. But I sort of ended up in that sketch group with them, which itself was was only ever really meant to be a sort of side project, and then that kind of blossomed <laughs> into this successful thing. You were nominated for a Perrier, which is we great. were yeah nominated for the Perrier when it was still the Perrier, and I actually have a. Perrier bottle in glass on my on my. Uh, they give you one for a norm. They do. They, they do. Bugger all for. They a give batter. you the same one. <laughs> they give you the same one whether you win or get nominated. Really? So, um, yeah. Not really worth trying, is it? No. Yeah. No. I'm, if you're uh, looking for a bottle. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fucking um, socialist award. Isn't it? Yes, it is very, very. Um, it's all different now, of course. Yeah. So I I was in Dutch Elm with those guys and and who I'm still very close with, um, but sort of very quickly was not it wasn't that I didn't enjoy performing but it was that I realized that the bit of the show that I the bit of being in the group that I liked was sort of everything apart from performing <laughs> or everything around it so well, the organization the organization of it and the writing of it and 
we were sort of self-directed to a certain extent but um you know figuring out what the the show was going to be and yeah me and rufus did um a lot of the a lot of the kind of overall writing and kind of conceptually and then the, and then the guys kind of came in and um finessed it and worked on the character stuff but that was the bit of dutch elm that i used to really enjoy and at the same time i was starting to direct bits and pieces outside of that and i sort of had always done a lot of stuff like sound engineering and graphic design and 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 all these things just suddenly kind of coalesced into oh i should just not be in front of the camera or on the stage <laughs> i should be doing everything else um yeah. but having that knowledge of of being a performer and understanding what being in a group is like and having the kind of new, what the neuroses are of performing and so on yeah. has been really helpful i think i think that's useful for anyways you should cross disciplines when I mean, we mm. always used to say that the I didn't start really learning. I'd written a lot, but I don't think I really started learning to write until we nagged our way onto a set. Because mm. as a writer, you're never on a set. We nagged our way. I said, could we be extras in things? Because mm. I'd never seen a shot be set up. I'd mm. seen, I've, I've been in the booth for sort of live recordings and things, but I'd not been on a set watching the catering trucks and things come in. And just to see what people were going through. Yeah. To go, oh, that's why I shouldn't ask the impossible. That, or rather, that's... I didn't even realise I was asking the impossible. Sure. But just to, that empathy of saying at some point someone's going to have to make this, someone's going to have to do it, someone's going to have to perform this, it's really useful to, to step out of being a writer or, a, yeah. or a, a backstage person and say, okay, what are they going through up there? Just watch closely. Yeah, and part of the kind of British model of, of TV making and filmmaking has traditionally been that the writer isn't really involved in production. Yeah. Mm. You know, we have this very linear system in the UK where a writer writes a script and then that gets greenlit and then some people go off and shoot it and the writer probably isn't really involved in that process at all it's changing a little bit now because of the yeah. influence of the american system but i always say like I, I never personally have an issue with writers being on set at all you're a fucking spare yeah. wheel when you turn up but as long as you don't mind being completely yeah. useless and what you learn is oh that thing that i wrote that is actually really hard to do and i can mm. see that they're really struggling with this or whatever or actually oh that's nowhere near as hard as I thought it was and I could have written something much more ambitious or whatever so and also watching what actors do with things and uh, I remember writing a, there was a scene I think in Touch of Cloth which I remember thinking on the page like god this is a and that was a gag 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 script and it was a bit where, the, where the, there were no gags for about two pages it was just a bit of drama mm. I remember thinking fuck we should give that another, another polish another polish and turned up and then watched two brilliant actors do mm. it and it was one of the funniest scenes mm. it was just a sexy flirting scene they brought all the, the their chops to it. Mm. They were fucking amazing. And you went, oh, I need to leave some spaces. It wasn't just, oh, the things I've written are impossible. It was also, when I haven't written something, someone will fill that gap if I leave a gap. Whether it's production design or a, a cameraman, there's little spaces for people to add their flourishes. Mm. And I don't think I'd ever have learned that. I'd always have just looked at the page and gone, not enough jokes, not enough jokes, without realising that sometimes you need to I think leave space for other people to do stuff. I think that's also because a lot of British comedy writers come from a come up through that kind of radio writing route yeah. and of course you know radio writing is by its very nature more for comedy is more gag intensive and mm. yeah. um done in front of an audience usually yeah. and, and everything has to be explained and said yeah. you know or, or done with sound obviously the visual medium opens a lot of that up and as you say there are all these different crafts that suddenly become involved that can add stuff that you hadn't even perceived might be in there and I suppose you're, you're, you're coming from a background there of, uh, say, graphic design and things. You're realising there are other places you can put the comedy in. Exactly. Which you wouldn't be in control of, I suppose, if you were just a performer or just a writer. No. And that's also, you know, there's an element of control freakery going on here. I think <laughs> What, a the, director? That's the elephant oh. in the room. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, there's, there's definitely an element of that too. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just, you know, there's also just 
I'm a, essentially a massive nerd, so um, <laughs> I get to be a nerd about everything, and it's all of the stuff that I love doing. It's, it's great, isn't it? Yeah, it's amazing. It's great. It's amazing. Like, when you I, get to just surf your nerdism, yeah. it's just such fun, isn't it? When your nerdism becomes necessary rather yeah. than a burden. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah, and particularly in post-production. I'm in post-production on something right now, and that is like nirvana because it's you've done all the really horrific bits of getting through production even on the most glorious shoot it's really 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 hard mm. um and you know pre-production and trying to get scripts into shape and all that and now you've just got all these raw materials now you you know you're essentially i can't remember whose quote this is but you're essentially just looking at all of your mistakes yeah. um, <laughs> um, but the great thing is you don't have to put those mistakes in the yeah. show um, now is your chance to rescue them yeah exactly or turn them into happy accidents or, or whatever or whatever it is so and also who was it who said that the edit is the third the third part mm. of the writing process basically yeah, yeah I everything I, gets written three times yeah I always think about that a lot I mean I think that um so you have to when you come to edit you have to actually remove yourself from the process of having filmed it and there's yeah. always a point yeah. when you've wrapped and you start editing there's a period of a few weeks for me where it takes me a moment to separate myself from those dailies because I can still mm. look at them and go oh, I remember what was happening on that day or oh, I really like that shot you know and oh, yeah. I really like that moment you have to completely separate yourself from you have to that. become a viewer yeah and go right let's look at this raw stuff and let's mm. see what we can build from this raw stuff. And, you know, different editors work differently, but um, Dave Webb, who's an editor I work with a lot, he does look at the script, but equally he's just looking at the dailies and just building a scene from what he's seeing, which in my head is the best way of doing it. I think mm. if you're slavishly going back to the script and saying, oh, yes, but this is what they were trying to do, and let me try and make that But work. you didn't get that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. because everything changes. As you said, the second stage of rewriting is the shoot, and the third stage is, is the edit. And there is so much latitude for what you can do and that's dangerous in itself but yeah. there is so much latitude for change in that third stage I think it's one of the reasons why there's always this sort of strange certainly in the press a power grab for creativity from each from a person who was there involved in the creative process at each stage so the writer will go this is all my vision and I can't believe what they did to it and then the actors will go we improvised it all on set it was amazing mm. the, the latitude we had mm. and the editor will secretly sulk and go that was shit before I got hold of it mm. because everyone's got a claim on having written yeah. this thing but actually, the three processes together get there. I was listening to Taika Waititi talking about making Thor, thinking a huge blockbuster. But the way he he describes it, you think they just made it up on the set. Mm. And he's very <laughs> dismissive of, in a nice way, of the original script because they went mm -hmm. wildly off it. But part of me went, yeah, a guy worked out how all those events would line up in a... It's a superhero epic. It's hard to write. Yeah. But the sort of dismissiveness of that first part of the process is as ludicrous as saying the actors made it all up on set. Yeah whatever it is you're doing, he will obviously have in his head what a huge job it was doing the edit. Sure. So for him, that's the freshest form of the writing. So you can dismiss the first part. But each part, each pass on this thing is a hugely difficult nine-dimensional jigsaw. Yeah. Uh, and and then, you put them together, hopefully. And there's a fourth part as well, which is people's own interpretations of what you've made. You, mm. know, you, you may think you've made something that's absolutely clear or you may think you've made something that's you know, where everything's so subtle and yet, you know, you've got this fourth bit that you can never fully predict, which is how, how is the audience going to yeah. gonna take it and what are they going to decide this thing is? They're going to decide what genre it is. They're going to decide what um, whether it's funny. They're going to decide all these things about it that you actually have only a limited amount of control over, even, yeah, if, you're, I, even if you're at the absolute top of your game. I didn't realise that when you... 
when you do a film, when you basically you hand over the tr the, the the responsibility to build the trailer for the film is done mm. by the studio, yeah. and they don't take the film; they take everything. They take yeah. every yeah, shot, yeah. so they've got everything yeah. that they can use every yeah, every usually, daily. They've usually cut a trailer before you've cut the film. Really? Yeah, I mean, often <laughs> you're often you can see a uh, a cut from a uh, certainly on a studio movie, you'll see a cut of a trailer way before you've. Um, uh, cut the movie, which is why trailers often have shots in them that aren't in the film. Yeah, um, there's all that sort of conspiracist debate as well, especially amongst the mm. nerd community. Why is the Hulk running forwards in yes. Avengers uh, Infinity yeah. War? Because the studio made that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Are you good at finishing something though, or do you then watch a series or a film that you've done go out and go? I might have another look at that. <laughs> um, well, I definitely look at stuff that I've done in the past and think. Oh, I can see what I was doing then. I can see how I've grown since I made that. And I yeah. would never do that now, even though at the time I thought that was great. But also I'm able to let it go and say, but that was that's just growth. That's just creative growth. It's okay to have yeah. made something is that, yeah. is that 10 why years it's, ago. That's never is that why it's hard to let something go? Because usually you're doing it for quite a long time. Mm. By the time you finish the process, you've probably learned more than the beginning. Yeah, that so is definitely go, true. I want, I want me, I want November me to have a pass at what June me did. That's definitely true. That's definitely true. And particularly on a TV series with multiple episodes. So, yeah. you know, that uh, what's happening now in the industry more and more, which is great, is that directors tend to direct whole runs of things you know the old tv model was that mm. you have different directors everything i've done i've directed all of it essentially yeah. because i come from that film background rather yeah. than a trad tv background and what happens is you tend to have to lock episodes sequentially and so what happens is you you will lock so at the moment i'm editing a show and i'm about to lock the first episode yeah now i won't lock episode eight until february and we're now in whatever month we're in now, December. December. Uh, thank you for reminding me. Um, um, it's a big ticking clock on the wall. Yeah. Um, and so what happens is you get to February and you have to be really careful that you're not thinking, ah. Oh. Um, and, and sometimes it's just a stylistic thing that by the time you get to episode eight, you've kind of morphed into a slightly different kind yeah. of thing that you're like. And then you have to try and retroactively make that work for the first episode. So, yeah, and I think you also, you have to be honest and, and, and relate back to what you've done already and you have to resist that urge slightly and just go, no, we're not, I'm not doing that because that's not what I've been making. Right. Yeah, I can't get, I can't get ahead of myself and maybe that's for the next time, you know, maybe mm. that's for the next and you have to put it in a, in a drawer for, for, for the next project or whatever. You have yeah. to be true to the thing that you set out to make, I think. And I, and I think also that the, the, the way that um, technology has affected creativity has meant that things are being made essentially with with less thought or with too many options and oh. so traditionally you know certainly when i started out as, as a runner working in television if a director was sitting in an edit for example and decided he wanted a piece of music you would be sent out as a runner to hmb to buy that in, in, <laughs> in my case on cd you then take the cd to stanley's on wardour street that would be then digitized onto umatic or beta then you take that tape back to the edit it would be up it would be digitized back into the avid and then and only then would they be able to go, is this the right track? Oh, no, it's not. Start again. Right. Whereas now wow. we can call up any piece of music, any sound effect, any, you know, to a certain extent, any visual effect within seconds. And so you have to avoid the temptation of the sort of sweetie jar of there's all this stuff over here. Because when I started out making short films, one of the best bits of advice I got from a producer friend was shoot them on film. And it'll, it's more of a hassle. And it'll cost you more, and you'll be have people saying to you, oh, "I'll shoot digitally," but she said, "Shoot on film, and I'll help you out, and we'll figure out a way to make it work." And I shot both of my first two short films on 35 mil, and the difference that makes in that you're going, 
I've bought these rolls of film on my credit card. Yeah. I have 10 rolls <laughs> and I have to get all of these shots across two days and I've got these actors who are scary to me at this point because I'm quite early in my career. I've yeah. got Imelda Staunton and James Cosmo and all these people who are, you know, very accomplished people and I'm just a guy. And what it make, made me do was make choices yeah. prior to shooting yep. and make choices while I was shooting that I was then stuck with. And that's really, really... Well, I think that's really, really important. Well, too, many, too many options is not helpful. It's paralysis. It? No. You no, can't I'm make a... them all at once. So I'm no. saying this with, with music mixing. I always used to insist when we were making music and things on saying, look, the guitar's going through this amplifier, through these pedals, and that's going on the track. So that when we later on have to mix it, you don't have to decide which amplifier mm. and which pedals it's going mm. through because you'll be making a hundred other decisions mm -hmm. at that point. That's, how loud yeah, it is. That's what my, my producer, when I was in a band, used to say. We're, we're, actually, no, he resisted it. We used to say, print this effect to tape. We want yeah, this yeah. on tape. We don't want to come back and just mm. rebuild this effect. You know, just do it. Well, no, we should keep the clean one just for options. No, just print it. Because I'd heard from a friend of mine who was an engineer, a, a very seasoned engineer and producer, that he'd been called in to work on someone very famous's album so a female solo artist and he was asked they said that we've got a pro tools rig here can you just can you comp the best vocals um for these two songs and he said yeah no problem for those of you who don't know what this means comping is when you've got two or three vocal takes and you choose the best bits of each and to build one vocal take which has got all the best bits of it he sat down at the pro tools rig and he was faced with 96 vocal takes of each song 96 oh. and he was sitting there for a fortnight picking individual syllables of words and building a vocal comp and eventually he just walked off the project saying mm. this is the least creative thing mm. i've ever done mm. you need to make decisions as you go because yeah. any creative process is a process of making decisions making hundreds yeah. of decisions the final thing you watch when you enjoy it or don't enjoy it, you're enjoying it or not enjoying it based on the taste of the tastemakers mm. who've made it and the point is there's a strange habit, especially now, with, as you're saying, with modern technology, to hold off having any taste decisions until the very last minute, mm. at which point you have to make one million decisions at once. <laughs> yeah. And you're far better off making them as you go along because your taste's operating 24-7. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's why it's, it's one of the things that's contributing to the, 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 the issue with um, cinema at the moment is that the, the lean towards the kind of Marvel cinematic universe mm. Um, sort of superhero-driven studio temple yeah. franchise movies is partly just to do with like that's the only thing they can get young people to come and see, yeah. which <laughs> then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, obviously. But the other issue is that you've got these movies that are being driven more and more by the visual effects requirements. And mm. so what happens is when you make these movies, you're often practically shooting very little stuff. You've got actors in essentially entirely green screen environments reacting to things that they're not quite sure what they're going to look like in the final cut. You're shooting everything in coverage. Um, you're, give, you're shooting a thousand options. And then the film essentially is built later on the, the stuff that you shot is just one element of putting that film together which is if you think about it is insane you, so you, you don't really it, know the story no you're not telling a story. no you'll have a script and you'll shoot it but essentially you're just shooting actors as elements you know and then you're and then you're piecing together a movie from that and you can change everything about it and what that's done it's is it's crazy. kind of killed i think kind of mid what i would describe as kind of mid-level uh, cinema or mid-level filmmaking you know i was very lucky that i got a break early on to make a uh, to me at the time it was monstrously huge but a 25 million dollar movie which is essentially a mid-sized movie yeah. was um, this butter uh, no that was uh she's out of my league yeah. right um you know to me as a, as a 20 something it was obviously an, a huge undertaking but that, mm. that by hollywood standards is essentially a small to mid-sized movie those size of movie just aren't really getting made anymore certainly not in the volume yeah. that they were and they tended to be comedies. I mean, that right. is the that is the bracket <laughs> that most comedies sit in. 
And like I said, it is a self-fulfilling prophecy slightly. The lesser than the make you make, the less people want to go and see them. Yeah. But those kind of movies are made in a very traditional way. You shoot, you, you have a script, you get a, the best bunch of people together that you can possibly find, and you go and shoot it and you try and make it as funny as possible and as interesting as possible. Yes, you can edit it and you can change it to a certain degree, but essentially you're still making and trying to release the same thing that you set out to yeah. make. That is not happening that often anymore. Um, and I think that's, I think that's sad actually, because I think you know there, that that was a really rip, particularly in the eighties and nineties. You know, yeah. with John Hughes and mm. and uh, the movie we're going to talk about John in a minute. Landis, yeah, you know, yeah. Th th that was a very very rich scene, and they were very very successful movies too, because they were made at a moderate price point, and they went on to gross large amounts of money. Mm. Um, well, I think we should naturally move from that onto mm. what we're talking about, because this yes. is a perfect example of a film that I think changed what people thought was possible. Mm. In that this is this is both a goofy Saturday Night Live comedy yep. of that budget. And, and also, one of Tarkovsky's finest movies. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> and also Hang on a second, I think I might have wrong. And a cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> no, but also, both that and also a huge tentpole special effects blockbuster yeah. brought out to sort of smash the Star Wars coffers open yeah. in, the, in the summer. Mm. And it managed to somehow and almost uniquely be both and mm. still be beloved today. So what have you brought in? Ghostbusters. Busting makes me feel good. No, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to fade up. Uh, I need a new drug by Hugh Lewis. I think. Or some boogie woogie. There's a lot of boogie woogie in the score. It's of very boogie woogie heavy, isn't it? Do you know what? It's a weird score, isn't and it? And he was really unhappy. Um, is it Bernstein? Emerson, is it? Bernstein. Yeah, Bernstein. He was yeah. really unhappy with the amount of um, commercial music that ended up in the movie. Right. I think it was just a product of the time, partly, that, that, yeah. that was the expectation of those films. But also, I have to say, like I personally watching it, don't feel like those tracks stand out in a bad way like they no, just they always no. seem to land in about the right spot they're quite they're, they're quite urban new mm. yorky Saturday yeah. Night Live they've got that they're very of the time and also just the fact it opens with some boogie woogie piano and yes yeah. the blues brothers guys yeah Come on, this, this this is perfect for what you're being sold as an audience you want a bit of stride piano yeah it's ground it makes it grounded i suppose you know and i think that that's something the film generally does really really well well that um, was that was his pitch Aykroyd's pitch which i hadn't this is a comedy film with one joke in the middle mm. and the one joke which is always good with a comedy film sometimes you just want one joke and the central joke is they're exterminators. Mm. It's a supernatural film written to be like a ghost special effects movie. And he said he had an elevator pitch and it was ghost janitors in New York. Mm. And he goes, brilliant. So it gives you a blue collar, mm. bloogie woogie piano. But I think, I think if you go backwards from that, I think originally Aykroyd's pitch um, was that it was going to be this big special effects extravaganza, this kind of multi, you know, $200 million yeah. um, thing. Was it set in the future or something? Yeah, it was yeah. set in alternate worlds and it was about this team kind of travelling between different worlds. And it was Ivan Reitman who said, A, we're not going to get the financing to yeah. do it. Mm. So how can we do it? But also just, from a, just comedically, I think this would be better off set in a grounded real place and let's let's do it in new york i love this town 
Well, that opens up a, a gag that has been successful ever since, which is, it is one you did for the wrong man's. It's, it is a wrong man's. Yeah. You, you, who are you going to call is, yeah. the, is the question. And the answer is, not those guys. Yeah. When these guys turn up, the answer is, oh, them? Yeah. Because they yeah. do look like pest exterminators. Yeah. I hope we could take care of this quietly. Tonight. Yes, sir. Don't worry. We handle this kind of thing all the time. And the central joke is blue collar, but with this, I think you get a lot of credit goes to uh, Aykroyd for the script, which was very, very supernaturally informed. But mm. then he passed it to Harold Ramis, who mm -hmm. come from uh, Second City, mm. and was very, very clever. And there's lots of intellectual or pseudo-intellectual, almost Monty Python-y level, yeah. long words and bobbins put on top of it that so this is very highfalutin. And yes. then you throw into that incredible bathos yes. of the blue collarness of everything. Yes. And Bill Murray in the middle is the man who's taking none of it on face value. <laughs> And this voice said, Zool. And then I slammed the refrigerator door and I left. That was two days ago, and I, I haven't been back to my apartment. Generally, you don't see that kind of behavior in a major appliance. What do you think it was? Well, if I knew what it was, I wouldn't be here. You know what it could be? Past life experience intruding on present time. Could be a race memory stored in the collective unconscious. I wouldn't rule out clairvoyance or telepathic contact either. I'm sorry. I don't believe in any of those things. Well, that's all right. I don't either. Yeah, and Bill Murray's doing the thing that he does so well, but I have to say, re-watching it, I had forgotten quite how sort of despicable he is in the first sort of <laughs> act. I mean, yeah, that was admirable back then. That was yeah, the guy we wanted to be. Yeah, but there's... Sleazy, there's, there's, Harvey Weinstein guy. Yeah, the stuff, that, the stuff that he's up to at the university with the electroshock therapy yeah. and... Hey! I'm getting a little tired of this! You volunteered, didn't you? We're paying you, aren't we? Yeah, but I didn't know you were going to be giving me electric shocks. Yeah, <laughs> and and the girl that there's the, the stock 1980s girl that's called Jennifer. Yeah, that's in every that's in every 1980s movie. They got her out of a cupboard. Didn't yeah, they? yeah. Marked Jennifer. Yeah, they did. You may as well get used to that. It's the kind of resentment that your ability is going to provoke in some people. Do you think I have it, Doctor Venkman? You're no fluke, Jennifer. Uh, along with the sort of um, the dean in a three-piece suit with a slightly British accent, who's also in every <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, yeah. in every eighties movie. Uh, so, but yes, he's he's astonishingly um, unlikable, actually. And what's really interesting, the character choice they made. I don't know whether it's it was Bill or Murray or whether it was in the script. But even though he's a paranormal investigator and he believes in paranormal stuff, yeah. When we meet him at the beginning of the film, we show him in a job that essentially where he's a doctor of, of this stuff he's yeah. a parapsychologist mm. when you meet Sigourney Weaver when they meet Dana later in the film he is dubious of all of her claims and yet yeah. pretends to believe them so that he can get into bed with her and you're like but no hang on you you do believe in this <laughs> there stuff. is a complete lack of character like this time mm. I'm watching it, I went I don't know I know what I'm meant to do the cool guy in this movie mm. is going to be Han Solo yeah he's going to be the guy who swaggers in and goes hey all this this stuff's bullshit mm. Ectoplasmic residue. Backman, get a sample of this. When somebody blows their nose and you want to keep it. I'd like to analyze it. Even though that guy doesn't exist in the character breakdown yes. for this film because they are all paranormal investigators. Yes. It's like a sit vac thing. There is a situation vacant for a debunking cynical guy. Mm. And because it's Bill Murray, it's casting, doesn't yeah. it? You go, well, he doesn't believe any of this bullshit. Yeah. And at the beginning, he's tricking the girl. He's not he's yes, using I suppose so, the parapsychology yeah. in order yes, to get a girl so. into bed. So that full, it kind of works, but it's a real fudge. But he's also not <laughs> flummoxed when he does experience real spooky stuff. So, for example, you know, and it's it's just something Bill Murray does 
really well anyway. But for example, when they see Slimer for the first yeah. time, he's disgusted by being slimed by him, but he's not actually Freaked spooked out, out no. by it. Um, and they they then they're then off running around the hotel trying to catch him in the trap and they're not really not scared. scared by it at all which he is he ain't afraid of no ghost he ain't, they ain't afraid of no ghost <laughs> Batman what happened are you okay he slimed me that's great actual physical contact it is really interesting how Fast and Lucid plays with the beliefs of those characters given that that is the title of the film. Well, it's interesting because I think it was written originally, Dan Aykroyd had like a family history of spiritualism or something right. like that. And basically he wanted to make it really hardcore mm. about the Fox sisters and Arthur yeah, Conan and yeah, Dorian. Yeah. He wanted to put yeah. all that stuff in. And not, almost none of that's gone in except for in a lovely way. You're talking about sort of mm. drafts and things like that. That you can feel that someone's done this hard work. Yes. And it's got yeah, a yeah. nice feeling of being about the paranormal. And that lovely, there's a, a bit of exposition they do right near the end where they're in jail. And they say about the building being spook central, yes. and that it's been built by this cultist. And you go, that I bet you is ninety percent of Ackroyd's first script yeah. being delivered as a two-minute exchange <laughs> there to go. So that's what we've been going on. The architect's name was Evo Shandor. I found it in Tobin's spirit guide. He was also a doctor. Performed a lot of unnecessary surgery, and then in 1920 he started a secret society. Let me guess. Gozer worshippers. But you don't care what's been yeah. going on because Bill Murray's been swaggering about being cool. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how far buried into the film you get is into, the actual story. Yes, you, you get into the mythology of Gozer and all that really, really it's, late. And it's actually, a masterclass in saying don't fuss that because people will just take it on trust and but also they want to know at some point. But, but also you get into the ghost busting really late in the film. The hotel yeah. sequence with Slimer is about a third of the way into the movie, yeah, which for a movie called Ghostbusters... I've got, I made a note of this because the first times you see them in their uniforms with the equipment, mm. in other words, the version of them that you would buy as a toy, is 32 minutes yeah, into a one. 107 minute theme, film. Theme song, 40 minutes in. Amazing. Uh, but 50, That's a hell of a cold open. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but 15 minutes in, which was quite quick, all the setup's in place. Yeah, well, that's they what they said, do. There's a business here. Yeah. And it's just them on the steps of the, the library going, hey, this could be a business. And I quite like the fact that it was a quick move in. You know what's going to happen. Mm. And they sort of hold. I mean, I suppose the ectomobile and the costumes is where you put the monster or the shark. Mm. It's about forty-five minutes into yeah. Alien, the Alien chest sure. bursts. You want your big marquee moment to be not too near the beginning, otherwise people just get tired. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And uh, they do a lot of work in the first twenty minutes. I would say, you know, Sigourney Weaver's not introduced until about yeah. twenty minutes into the mm. film. She feels about right. I wondered about that and thought, would it have been better to see her being haunted at the beginning rather than the librarian? I went, no, I like the idea of no, it's getting great. a new character. To it's come great in. because you've got to know. Well, particularly for her story, you've got to know Bill Murray pretty well, but yeah. you've got to know Venkman pretty well by that point. And so when you see her, you're like, oh, I'm going to enjoy seeing these two. Because basically there's this sort of chalk and cheese um, rom-com in the, in the centre of the movie. It's a really... that the, My big takeaway from this, which I hadn't noticed before, because the thing about Ghostbusters, why everyone loves dressing up as Ghostbusters and playing the toy, <laughs> why it was a hit, is it's a gang. It's a mm. gang of mates doing a fun thing and they've got... They've got a fun house. It's a tree mm. house. We've got a mm. pole. Mm -hmm. We're gonna. They're, they're literally they're the banana splits. They're the monkeys. They're, they're mm. a gang of mates who are going to get together and do. They're the Beatles in help. Mm. Wow, this place is great. When can we move in? You've got to try this pole. I'm going to get my stuff. But it's not a gang movie at all because there's there are three characters I barely get to know. Mm. And the one character I follow through who's got an arc I care for is Bill Murray. Yeah. And it's Bill Murray and his mates. And I hadn't... I remember thinking when I first saw it, he's the star. Mm. He's the guy you want to be and he's the cool one. But I hadn't watched it and thought, 
there's a couple of scenes with like Dan Aykroyd and, and Ernie Hudson in a car. Mm. They say a couple of things to each other. But you don't well, get to know the other guys at all. Quite a lot, yeah. And it probably helps it feel tight and stops it being this rambling mm. Saturday Night Live, all my mates have got a, a scene each thing. Yeah. In that it focuses on Bill Murray's story. And that's actually very enjoyable. Yeah, and what they did, you know, as you were saying about, you know, Aykroyd's original draft being very, very sort of um, interested in the kind of spirituality and the mythology, yeah. what they did, and I think what Ivan Reitman did, and I think what the, um, you know, the production designer did, is they created these quite simple childlike handholds in the film. Mm. Yeah. Like the, their car is basically an ambulance crossed with a hearse. Yeah. They're based in a fire station. They use things like Twinkies and Marshmallow Men, yeah. so you so you can have Ramis talking about Gozer and and and, and, yeah. all, and, and, and uh, the electromagnetic spectrum and all this stuff. But you don't doesn't matter because as a kid, which is you know one of the biggest audiences of the, for the film would be that kind of demographic. You've got, got handholds that you go, well, I understand what that is. It has yeah. got kids' movie beats in it. I mean, it's got the great thing they've got they've got a car that's a car you want to drive as a kid mm. and. It is related to the Bluesmobile, as in mm, there's yes. an emergency vehicle that Dan Aykroyd has stolen and drives. Yes. He likes doing that. Yeah. It's got flashing lights, it goes woo-woo. There's a whole bit where he talks about the mechanics of the car, which <laughs> just shouldn't be in the film at all. <laughs> he wants the car. Yeah. They've got the treehouse, there's mm. the gang thing. Hey, we should stay here tonight, sleep here, you know, to try it out. They've got toys, they've got the packs, they've got, they've got things you want to buy, and it's a real understanding of there being a kid audience. There's a double bathos in it, mm. in that it's a horror movie that's come after the wake of, sort of Carrie and The mm. Exorcist. It borrows The Exorcist for the floating scene and things like mm -hmm. that. But it's very much aimed at a kid audience. They won't get lost. And my favourite kid audience bit in it is if you say, who's the baddie in Ghostbusters? If, when I was a kid and I watched mm. it. It's not Gozer. It's the guy from City Hall. Yeah, it's yeah. Dickless. Yeah, and Dickless is a character from a Roald Dahl story. He mm. comes down. He does something unfair. He says to the guys, "You can't play in your playhouse yeah. no more." I'm warning you. Turning off these machines would be extremely hazardous. I'll tell you what's hazardous. You're facing federal prosecution for at least a half a dozen environmental violations. Now either you shut off these beams or we shut them off for you. That's the same of uh, the, the dean at the beginning yeah. who says the funding is going to be taken away. This university will no longer continue any funding of any kind for your group's activity. But the kids love us. And, uh, yeah, the guy from the EPA, though their roles are essentially the dad saying, you know, stop having so much fun in the treehouse, basically. But we, we found that when we, when we were called in to, to do some fixing on the first Paddington movie. Was the, the, the change we had to make was there was a really good baddie, like someone who would kill mm. the bear. And it didn't work at all for kids, so we upped Hugh Bonneville and said, if Dad tells him off, yeah. if Dad sends him into the yeah. street, every kid knows what that means. Yeah, sure. And it's really important to have unfairness yeah. in things, because kids don't understand death as much as they understand someone being mean to them or unfair. Yeah. And that's Matilda. That's yeah. the whole... Roald Dahl lived for it being... That's not fair. Kids really mm -hmm. feel... It burns a kid. And I remember that scene where, where he turns off the ghost containment thing being absolutely electric in the cinema. Yes, yeah. <laughs> because it's so... He's so... Oh, yeah. what yeah. a rotter. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's Herbie Goes Bananas levels of Disney rotter. And I think even the even the kind of the big bad stuff in the film, the, the sort of the Zool and the sort of the, the the other dimensions and so on, is essentially represented by that neighbor's dog that barks through the fence at you. Yeah. You know, and I think it's it's a very simple sort of tangible representation of the bad in the film. Because yeah. I think I think you know it's brilliant when Dana opens her fridge and sort of sees sees through to another dimension. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny, but as a kid, th that's just weird. It doesn't really 
feel like anything with any threat associated. Generally, with it. that's you not just, something you see in a major. Approach. Yeah, you just yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's best, one of the best lines in the film. Um, in, in a film stuffed with very good lines, that is one of the best. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner 3 days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's really nice just to watch it again. But I mean, I've, I've obviously seen it lots. Obviously, you saw yes. it at the time when it came out. And... Uh, my first, my first time. Wow! This is one of these things. I don't know why I've never seen Ghostbusters. It's weird, but also I, I'm, you know, like I'd never seen Frasier before. We looked at it for this podcast, and mm. I still haven't seen Seinfeld. Mm. Well, interestingly, Ghostbusters sort of conversely to your experience of it. Ghostbusters was the first film that I was aware of existing. So as a as oh, an eight year old, wow! It's the first film now that I can remember knowing that there was a film that was going to come out, and it was called Ghostbusters. And I remember the artwork, and I remember people talking about it. Yeah. It was really, really well marketed. I remember the excitement, knowing this was coming out, knowing nothing about it. I think I'd heard the song, mm-hmm. and I'd seen the logo, which is amazing because obviously pre-internet, pre-social media, they mm. just had a very, very strong 
logo. That logo is amazing. It was designed by the associate producer, Michael Gross. Michael right. Gross designed it. And they designed the logo because they wanted a teaser poster that didn't have the word Ghostbusters on it. Right. Because the Ghostbusters had been a 1970s TV show and they didn't have the rights. Mm. And they were sorting that out. Uh, and he designed it. And he was the art director of National Lampoon. Mm. He, <laughs> obviously, they knew him from that sort of mm. that scene. But he had designed the, um, if you don't buy this magazine, the dog gets it cover of right. National Lampoon. He's a brilliant <laughs> graphic designer. Yeah. And he was the guy who made all the uh, graphics in National Lampoon look like the real thing. Yeah. So it looks like a real company logo. It yeah, is it's an perfect. amazing piece of branding. It's perfect. And I literally, we, we lived in Shooters Hill at the time in, in South East London. And I just literally can, can viscerally remember walking up Shooters Hill to school and seeing the Ghostbusters artwork on... Uh, sort of pasted on a telephone junction box. Mm. Uh, I can literally picture that image in my head. And uh, I also remember the TV spots at the time because, you know, back then that's how you released a movie. It was yeah. a print campaign and TV spots. Yeah. And uh, the TV spots were the TV spots that the Ghostbusters themselves Do. make in the film. Wow. So this is very meta. Oh. Um, yeah, right. it's very, very meta. You know, the the, the the one that you see in the film. Where they're slightly sort of, awkward. They're sort of stepping forward and looking for their marks and saying, call us today. Are you troubled by strange noises in the middle of the night? Do you experience feelings of dread in your basement or attic? you or any of your family ever seen a spook, specter or ghost? If the answer is yes, then don't wait another minute. Pick up your phone and call the professionals. Go Ghostbusters. They actually used those in wow. a kind of very meta way as the spot. So it felt as a kid that you were being recruited to join Ghostbusters and I remember that feeling of course I didn't see it in the cinema it was like three years later I saw yeah. it on VHS <laughs> um, but, it had, um, but it had a feeling a reputation it had a thing it always reminds me of there's a great story about when George Lucas was trying to market Star Wars trying to raise money for it uh, and it was, a, it was called something ludicrous at the time The Adventures of the Wills of Luke Right. Dark killer, or whatever. yeah, and and he had loads of alternate titles. And he went to some marketing guys, and the, and the marketing guys came back with a report, and they said, "Call it Star Wars." There are one million people in America who will go and see anything called Star Wars, regardless of quality. Mm. <laughs> and it meant he raised the money for it because he mm. knew that basically there was an audience mm. out there ready for this. And I think and they still exist; those but people totally in common with all the other great blockbuster movies that we grew up with. That, that golden age of blockbuster fun Hollywood we all remember from the late seventies, early eight, and into the eighties. What it's got is that when someone tells you the title or the logo, you know what the film is already. There's nothing to consider. Ghostbusters, mm. you know what's going to Star Wars, you know what it's going to be. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and that poster you see the hat. And you go, because they're all based on existing properties. Mm. This is Dan Aykroyd trying to remake Bob Hope, Goofy, The Ghostbreakers, mm -hmm. 1940s ghost caper comedies. Mm. And Indiana Jones is Republic serials and Star mm. Wars is Flash Gordon. Mm. They're the most astonishing properties in that they are new properties that have the quality of a sequel or a franchise mm. before they even started. I think Ghostbusters is the best one. That poster comes up and you go, I don't need to know anything about this. I know what this is going to be because it's a cartoon character that's so goofy and it's got ghosts in it. Mm. And you've probably stumbled upon something like Abbott and Costello meet the Wolfman that's got that comedy horror mm. mashup before. It's got a ready-made audience. The irony of that being that they've struggled to make it into a successful franchise. I mean, yeah. the, the sequel was... was not good. The best thing about the Ghostbusters 2 was the poster, was the ghost yeah. with, with two, two fingers thing. up. Again, Michael um, Gross probably doing his job. The graphic, <laughs> I think, but that's it. I think what's great about this is it is a teaser. It's a mm. teaser that says, do you want to go and see this? And the answer is, of course I do. I'm mm. nine. Mm. And you've given me an ambulance and some mm. guys with toys on their yeah. backs. And yeah. everything about it says you want to be part of this. And, and you can go to the playground and play it afterwards. Mm. There's a real value to all those things, whether it's the DeLorean in, in Back to the Future mm. or the lightsabers. The, all these things have got toys and play value in them. Mm. 
accidentally almost, but as part of yes, the... Yes, not cynically. I think, I think yeah. it was... There's a it, joy in yes. it. Saying that the, the filmmakers are playing as well because they are remembering their childhoods because mm. this is Dan Aykroyd said, I wanted to make a Bob yeah. Hope Ghostbuster movie. You went, well, great. Well, you're going to have joy. You'll have the same attitude to this as someone who's given a great franchise now. Mm. For a kid's movie, there's a lot of smoking in it. They are all, <laughs> they are all the smoking <laughs> all the time. It's mad. Well, I, it's definitely a grown-up movie. It had swearing in yeah, it. I knew yeah, yeah. it was a frat boy Well, yeah, there's a scene where Dan Aykroyd receives oral sex from a phantasm. That um, is astonishingly mm. weird because it's a fantasy. It's a dream. Yeah. And, you know, it you was must. shot originally as a there was a whole sequence that they justified it by turning it into a dream um, when you say they justified it they nearly justified it <laughs> they justified it to themselves yeah. um, by, by saying that We've it was all a dream that. but it's <laughs> actually it was a scripted sequence and there's a, there's a oh. 10 minute sequence at a military base where it happens and well, which, you d- which you ended f- up being cut <laughs> but these, he, these are the guys who just made stripes and yeah. as in it's the team who make these sort of goofy very like college yeah, I mean, there's two or three moments comedies. like that, I would say, in the film, which which watching it now really, I have to say, made made my skin crawl a little bit. But <laughs> by the standards of a lot of other films of the era, I think it doesn't often veer into that territory. And, uh, no. and it's, by and large, it's not a film that's patronising to kids and it's no. not a film that's childish to adults, which is a yeah. really, really hard trick to pull off. I ain't afraid of no ghosts. Jeopardy's really good. The scares are good. They're proper mm. scary. The special effects are fucking brilliant. Yeah, they but also they cast Sigourney brilliant. Weaver, who yeah. had just well, not just, but like had was known at the time from Alien. Yeah, you know, and mm. which is a, a brilliant casting trick because you, the moment you see her, you're like, oh god, what's going to happen? Yeah, yeah, you're slightly <laughs> uh, it, nervous. It's that girl from Alien. Um, plus, she's so classy and so mm. grown up in the film and you yes. can literally feel the men in the film bumping into stuff around her she's not so... Jennifer is she she hasn't no. come out of the cupboard no she hasn't and 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 I think that to me is one of the she's the absolute rock centre of the film in the way that you, you know we were just discussing how Bill Murray kind of rises up above the rest of the gang slightly yeah. I think Sigourney Weaver is the, is the heart and soul of that film she's, um, she's giving a stage performance because yeah, she's come she's a theatre background isn't she? Yeah. Mm. And she, she said I think she wanted to do it because she'd done Alien and she mm. wanted to do comedy she'd, she'd, yeah. come from, she'd done loads of comedies on stage and what you get from this because she doesn't have a shitload of lines or even that huge a character but it's just about the way she moves. She's yeah, a she's, physical clown. And she just really has well. this half smile on her face the whole time, which is amazing. <laughs> like she's just every time she's every time Bill Murray's buzzing around her saying, Oh, don't worry about this, it's technical. She's just got this kind of half smile across her lips, which is really kind of beguiling and and, and lets you know that she thinks these people are idiots too. Yeah. She is amazing. I was thinking. Even though she's this. genuinely scared. What is that thing you're doing? It's technical. It's one of our little toys. Watching this, thinking she is an asset to a comedy because she is so brilliant in Galaxy Quest is her other mm. great comedy performance, yeah. I think. And she's a working girl. She's brilliant in mm-hmm. that as well. Whenever she does a comedy, she's really brilliant because she does it completely straight and brings all this enormous dignity to it. Mm. It's um, very funny. Bill Murray, I was, I was looking at him in this film and I, you, might, you might get this, Jim, because you, you understand actors better than either of us do, I think. But 
Bill Murray is really enjoying and using the space that he's in mm. whenever he is on yeah. camera. Yeah. Yeah. There's, a lo- there's a lovely moment where he vaults over the yes. desk, you know, yeah, yeah. things like that. And Pirouetting I was thinking- in the in the square with the, yeah. with the guy who's doing roller skating. Yes, yeah, the yeah, sort of yeah. sound of music moment. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I was thinking about him in, in, in Groundhog Day, in that mm. beautiful scene in Groundhog Day where he's ordered the entire cake menu <laughs> yeah. and is sitting in the diner just stuffing his face yeah. with cake and going, he's really using yeah. every bit of that shot that he's Well, in. also, that is... That is Bill Murray, but it's Reitman, really, because right. Ivan Reitman shoots, and I hadn't realised until I rewatched this film recently how much it's influenced my personal right. style. And I right. think it's not necessarily that I've, I've inadvertently become this sort of Ivan Reitman aficionado, but we have very similar sort of comedic backgrounds in yeah. working with sketch comedians and having done live comedy and worked in and around that world, yeah. that in combo with Ramis and Bill Murray mm. and Aykroyd, who all came from essentially a sketch background. What Reitman does brilliantly in this film is let everything play, to a large extent, play in master shots. And everything is shot quite loosely and quite wide. And what that enables people like Bill Murray to do is use the whole frame yeah. um, and it's not sh- and every scene is allowed to play they're not the scenes aren't cut to within an inch of their lives because you've got you know three or four actors together in a scene who are all at the absolute top of their game they all know each other really well they have their timing locked down and there's a lot of improv in the film particularly from Rick Moranis obviously but there's there's even within the others there's a huge amount of improv in the film and so Reitman allows that he shoots wider. They know he's shooting wider. They know he, <laughs> he will use the master shot. They're not worrying so much about continuity and so on. And if you if you watch the film, there's very rarely um, a scene which goes into coverage or punches into yeah. coverage halfway through a scene. Mm. They only ever do it for comedic effect. There's a scene where Janine is complaining to Bill Murray about not having had a break for two weeks. Yeah. He says, oh, if you need me, I'll be in my office. And he just walks around the other side of the partition and just sits straight down. <laughs> um, and then the camera pulls back and then Spengler pops up from underneath the desk and he's been there for the entire scene. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and Janine says, oh, you're, you're very handy, um, which is, again, a pretty outrageous moment <laughs> in a family film. Type something, will you? We're paying for this stuff. Don't stare at me. You get the bug eyes. Janine. Sorry about the bug eyes thing. I'll be in my office. Very handy, I can tell. But it's only right when only ever only, only ever cuts like that comedically. Generally speaking, he'll let the scene play in a master shot. I hadn't realised, but that's had a massive influence on me because I hate shooting coverage. And I think it was Tony Way who said this. He said when you watch a modern comedy, very often because it's been improvised and there've been 114 takes, mm. they're cutting. It's a one shot and a one shot yeah. and a one shot, and you never get the feeling the per- the people have shared a, a yeah. set. Yeah, you this don't all, you don't storyboard, do you? Isn't it? I don't storyboard. No, well, actually, I thought that was extraordinary. When I came down to the wrong man set mm. to and and just watched you working, and you and you had there was, there was so much going on, but mm. I didn't realise you hadn't storyboarded a thing. No, I don't story. I sort of storyboard in my head, I suppose, but I don't. I don't do physical storyboards. I certainly don't draw storyboards. Is that so you can respond to people's movements. Or? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Like I, I, I think so many things can happen from from finding something with an actor, finding a moment that you hadn't expected to just the usual practical problems you come across when you're you know you shoot at the like you turn up at the location and of course it's now raining or it's yeah any number of things um there's there's sound issues or whatever so so i try and be fleet of foot i know that in ghostbusters they had to do a huge amount of storyboarding because of it was in the very early days of uh, visual effects and a lot of them were done optically Mm. and they 
had to be very, very precise about what was going to be a visual effect and what wasn't. Mm. And what they do so well in Ghostbusters, which again has had a huge influence on me, and particularly on the project Truth Seekers that I'm working on at the moment, but in The Wrong Man's and in Stag and almost anything I've done that's got a genre bent, I try and do all of the effects practically in, in camera because I want to put, A, because I think it looks better, but also because I want to put the actor in the frame with the effect. Yeah. yeah. Because I want the actor to be able to react to the effect. And particularly in a comedy, you need to understand what the timing of it is going to be and how how to modulate the person's reaction to the thing that they're seeing. Yeah. In a big visual effects spectacular where it's not comedic and you're not relying so much upon that timing necessarily, those Marvel movies, for example, mm. I prefer to be there on the day looking at the monitor and I can see, yes, we might have to do some visual effects cleanup or some, some enhancements later on, but I'm seeing the effect as the viewer will see it. And this film does it amazingly well. It, because they couldn't afford it, they held back on the visual effects. and They're in just the right places. They're in, and they are, yes, yes the, the visual effects are great because, A, they're optical effects. They're not computer-generated effects. There's a lot of glass map yeah, paintings, these very all, 1940s yeah. stuff. And because you can see, because it's always mixed with practical effects, you can see the stop motion effects of, of the dog. Yeah, mm. you just it still feels real because you can see the handmade quality of it's it. It's a very classy and classical film because obviously this this is a, a part of that phalanx of films that go. This is modern cinema, blockbuster cinema. The thing that that uh, that Peter Biskin would argue destroys everything. You go, no, but it's really old fashioned. Mm. It's got stop motion puppets in it. It's got hand puppets. Mm. It's got. Even something like the, the library cards blowing into the air is beautiful. Oh, well, it's that great sequence. Great effect. That's, that, the opening sequence of this film is, is I think, should be uh, in the Smithsonian. If there's something strange in the neighborhood, who you gonna call? got the green light for this they had 13 months mm. from from no screenplay to finishing special effects to make this yeah so it's done really fast but they had to get they got richard edland into the special effects who had been at ilm he'd done star wars raiders and he'd done poltergeist and he'd done those for ilm but ilm were busy making didn't sec- they have to pay to actually set his studio yeah up? i think columbia gave him five million dollars and he said set up your own boss mm. films it's his own special effects house mm. but he i think ilm were busy doing probably temple of doom or something mm. indiana jones they were working for spielberg anyway mm. so he had to set up his own thing but he is a guy who's learned all these tricks and he's now doing them i mean it's an expensive movie but it's not an expensive it's 30 million dollars yeah. or something it's more expensive than a comedy would normally be mm. but they're really spare with them and they use them really cleverly and they are Classic effect. The other thing I found out, which blew my mind, is that the production designer on this uh, was nearly 70. His name's John De Queer, I think, or John De Queer. And he was the production designer on Cleopatra. Right. <laughs> and when you go wow. to the top of that building mm. and all that art, yeah, yeah. Yeah, go, yeah. this is a 1940s movie. Yeah. It looks like yeah. something from classic Hollywood. Yeah. So you've got. And uh, the score, the score Weaver, matches it. Sigourney Weaver yeah. sashaying through it in yeah. that dress. And you go, yeah. this feels like a musical. Yeah. It's using its, its special effects moments like the dance numbers in a musical it's very old hollywood all its values are very old-fashioned and they just put a little sprinkler of sort of 80s hip on top of it and a bit of a soundtrack yeah mm. and 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 the, and the practical effects that are in there are the, the kind of everyday stuff the library cards is, is a really good example but the other one Glorious. that always sticks in How my is mind that is done? the 
it's, air? It's literally like a, yeah, like a like, like compressed uh, compressed air. I just try. I was marvelling. It's at beautifully it. done, and and you can see the influence on it right through to if you look at the Harry Potter movies, for example, you yes. can see yeah. how yeah. they try to do these practical effects, but then they've had to do them in you know they've wanted to do them in 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 CGI, and it's just it's just not quite the same because it yeah. doesn't have that tangible quality. You know, in that in that cold open with the librarian, you don't see anything no it's all done through the library mm. cards and and her reaction you don't see anything which is also, which is you know very clever of them to not show what may not have been a particularly great visual effect right before yeah. the films got going but also i remembered seeing the ghost i'm mistaken yeah no you don't my brain yeah. filled, I'd, I'd put those scenes together the other thing you do with the practical effects you cut away from it really fucking yeah. quickly yeah so you get the editing is always faster so when there's a stop motion dog or a, a, a cgi spectre yeah, you get off it you don't mm. don't hang on it, which means your brain then fills that in for the next couple of frames. It's yeah, great. and like you know, I, I I say I shoot with a lot of practical effects, and you're there on set going, "Oh my god, this looks so bad. <laughs> <laughs> Why did I ever think this? This is a this is somebody wearing a suit, you know?" So um, we have these characters uh, in the show that uh, I've been making. Well, I wanted to do them practically, you know, it would have been tempting to do them as VFX, but I was like, I want the thing there, and so it, you know, we've got people wearing suits, and our costume designer Wiz Francis made these suits and we had lots of influences and lots of references and the drawings looked fantastic and the suits themselves when we when we got them made looked amazing and they have these sort of plague masks that they wear that are just sort of terrifying <laughs> but then of course you put it on a person <laughs> and even a six foot movement specialist who knows how to do that kind of thing when you're standing in a field in you know in Buckinghamshire <laughs> it's like oh no this is appalling <laughs> and so you end up but then your confidence comes back because you think well I don't have to show it and as you've just said Joel you can cut away from it and yeah. and, and the, the the blink of it is what gives you the, is what gives you the scare um, but the, the practical effects in Ghostbusters my favourite one is the eggs that uh, fry on the counter That's which amazing. is done oh, isn't that in, it's done in camera there's no cut yeah. I mean watching it now on an HD restoration you can see the edge of the heat pad but only just and you certainly wouldn't have been able to see that in, at the time, projected and it's, it, a magnific- it's amazing. She's, she's in camera. She's in shot with it. Importantly, as well, and I found this out today. Next to that box of eggs is the Stay Puft Marshmallow bag. Yes, back. yeah, yeah, yes. And do you know why that's there? I never realised. Stay Puft's not real. Right. They made it up. Yeah. That was it's news not, to me as yeah, well. Yeah, it is yeah, not yeah. an American. So I have just, grabbed just the whole of my life. Their own movie, yeah. There are a couple of uh, billboard as this one painted brick ad for mm-hmm. it. They've done it. I thought Stay Puft was an American brand like Twinkies that yes. I'd not heard yeah, of, yeah. but they put the, the marshmallows there to do it. To establish it. To know that at the end, you know that guy. Yeah. It's the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. They designed that guy to be the best mascot. They could be a bit yeah. of a Michelin man, yeah. Pillsbury Doughboy thing. Mm. I never knew. I thought Stay Puft was a thing. I tried to think of the most harmless thing. Something I loved from my childhood. Something that could never, ever possibly destroy us. Mr. Stay Puft. Nice thinking, Ray. Now, yeah. listen. I, d- I don't want to try and I don't want to try and outrun you here. <laughs> yeah. But okay, on. having never seen the film before, yeah. I also thought Stay Puft was yeah. real. I definitely heard of Stay Puft and but, thought it was real. Well, you'll have heard of it because of the film. Yeah, the exactly. Yeah. And, but I, but, it, but it turned into a real thing in my head. Yeah. So when yes. it, and then it was only when I watched the the Netflix uh, the movies we made documentary yeah. about Ghostbusters <laughs> yeah. that I found out that it wasn't real. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's, it's a British what? thing. Weirdly, as a British person, I think it enhances it. So I went, oh, it's one of those things like when they refer to Tylenol or yeah. cilantro that I just have to go. Yeah, I mean, I was Stay Puft. Yeah, we always yeah. did them uh, s'mores. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You were so used to 
taking on board American bullshit yeah. and, and pretending <laughs> in the playground that you yeah. turned it, yeah. that this went in with the same thing. We used to roast Stay Puft marshmallows by the fire at Camp Wakanda. Ray has gone bye-bye, you gun. What have you got left? Sorry, Bankman. I'm terrified beyond the capacity for rational thought. Stay Puft, when it comes in and they, they've got that moment where, where the big guy's going to come mm. in, a is one of the best jokes ever, mm. and you've forgotten that that's a great joke. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing is, we we're talking about this being a children's film. I looked at it and went, "Oh shit, it's the goodies. Mm. It's the big kitten, uh, isn't yeah, it? It yeah. literally is. Three guys who deal with adventure, mm -hmm. with a fourth guy added in. Mm. The three guys who deal with adventure, and they get attacked by a great big funny cuddly thing. And went, no wonder I love this as a kid. This is mm. basically a British." TV comedy show. Mm. It's got a Monty Python. Yeah, it's very Python-esque. Very Python-esque indeed. Um, like just the sort of surreality of that, of that yeah. image of that walking down the street. <laughs> it's so it's beautiful. Amazing. Yeah. That again, as a special effect, that's not dated at all. That no. is brilliant. Well, that's that's model making. I mean, that's just mm. a one model making, basically. Just the city absolutely, which is stunning. a Godzilla gag. Yeah, but it doesn't look like a cheap Godzilla gag. It's, no, it's... it's an ILM grade one of those. We've been going about this all wrong. This Mr. Stay Puft is okay. He's a sailor. He's in New York. We get this guy laid. We won't have any trouble. Yeah, and it's the perfect mix of the you know the practical effects with the foam afterwards. Oh. You know, it's just it's just that perfect. And like like they do with Slimer, actually, I have to say, like Slimer, for all of the slight hokiness of, of the optical effect of Slimer, yeah. what they do so well is combining it with practical effects. So, for example, the you know the room service trolleys that go flying along mm. and smash into walls, and then it leaves a trail of real physical slime wherever it goes. It's just done brilliantly. You don't see. Slimer go through Bill Murray. You think you do. Yeah. You don't see it. They cut away from it. He's an ugly little spud, isn't he? I think he can hear you, Ray. Don't move. It won't hurt you. Aykroyd's yeah, running around the corner and we're in a steady cam shot with him. We run around the corner and we find Bill Murray covered in slime <laughs> and says, He slimed me. Now, in my head, I was like, oh, yeah, there's a shot where it yeah. passes through him. No, nope, doesn't exist. Well, you're, you're making, I mean, we've always said this, that the, the funniest jokes and the best scares as well, I suppose, same rules, scary and funny, uh, are made in your head. Mm. So the audience get to watch, as you said, generous three shots, four shots mm -hmm. of people doing their stuff. And when it does cut, your brain fills in those gaps mm. and it puts in scary stuff and funny stuff. Yeah. That is, I mean, this film is delightful. Which is odd because it's uh, yeah. it could have been a cynical kind of hipster. Uh, these guys are are the coolest SNL guys, mm. but it's big and goofy and lovable. Yeah, and when it doesn't work, which is rarely and far bit from me to judge, but when it doesn't work, it's only because of their love of what they're trying to do. Uh, you know, the one that sticks in my head is is the is Rick Moranis at his house party. There's that long extended improvised, yeah. very Woody Allen esque take they do where he's saying you know these aren't my friends that they're clients yeah, um, yeah. dispensing financial information and collecting up the coats and he throws the coats into the into the, the bedroom and they land on the dog yeah. um, and they just hold on the dog way too long yeah, like yeah. way too long they're on it for about five <laughs> seconds you're like no you don't actually need to even see the dog there they could have had him throw the coats and you hear it A girl. Um, but they've made this very very expensive animatronic dog yeah. and they're pretty pleased with it and they're going to let it sit because they paid for it. And now you would be off that in a, in a heartbeat or not see it at all. Um, and you, you probably know, laugh more, actually. That, yeah. is a, that is a joke that kind of dies. You're throw, throwing a coat on the dog is a terrific, on the script, mm. on the page, a brilliant gag. 
And there are, I remember this being a lot lighter joke-wise than it was. Watch it again. I, uh, it's I, very joke-heavy, yeah. and uh, it's full of visual jokes, and it's full of a lot of what I love, which is when they manage to do both, so they have a joke uh, married to action. There's a great sequence after um, the end of that Moranis thing where he says, okay, who brought the dog, which is a great line. Um, <laughs> but he's being chased by the dog across yeah. the streets of New York, and he's still talking about the fact that he's going to talk to the residence committee about no pets in the building. Um, <laughs> to bring us up at the next tenants meeting. There's not supposed to be any pets in the building. You've set up this thing as being, this is the jeopardy of the film and we should all be scared of this yeah. thing. And Rick Moranis, if anyone's going to be scared, it's going to be this this Tully character. Yeah, yeah. And he's still just concerned with um, it being a, a sort of oversized pet. The central core of this, probably Ackroyd's original script, is there's a lot at stake. Hell is going to open. This is Judgment mm. Day. Biblical references. But by putting these characters in there, all of whom are either undercutting it by, by being mm. too nerdy to see a bigger picture or in the Bill Murray way of kind of going, well, I've got other priorities. Mm. I want to get into this girl's pants. Mm. All of that is, is helping you deal with the fact that this is a horror film. And the, and the threats that they do all take seriously and don't undercut are the human threats in the film. Mm. You know, the humans and the monsters. But, you know, it's, it is the Dean and it is um, the EPA, guy. The EPA yeah. guy. They are genuinely worried about him and worried what that's going to do to their business. And that's like a real... Yeah. Uh, you know, a real world threat. And it's interesting, I was, I was reading a thing where Aykroyd was talking about how he wanted to start it with these guys um, It worked in a, in a university who were trying to start a business because he was like, it was the 80s. Everyone was trying to start a business. Yeah, it's <laughs> that right. was the yeah. mode everyone was in. Very 80s, but quite an adult theme to have yeah. very early on in the film, this idea that we're going to go into business and we're going to we're going to be enterprising, and then these other people are going to come along. These these sort of essential sort of tra trad conservatives yeah. types are going to come along and tell us, no, 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 you naughty kids can't do it this way. You're you can't play with the big boys. You know, um, you can't sit at the big boys' table, and that's the threat that's played straight and yes. serious in the film. But that's what makes you care about them. The paranormal stuff is never going to make you care yeah. about them. Mm. But they part that quite nicely in the background. The other threat they do, and they deal with brilliantly. I wanted to talk about as a as an example of brilliance script writing and how to write a good comedy threat script is they deal with the science mm. is really threatening you know it's just occurred to me we really haven't had a completely successful test of this equipment i blame myself so do i don't cross the streams mm. we've got yeah. an unlicensed nuclear accelerator on our back mm. i remember being quite scared as a kid and part of that was that amazing sound design where they turn it on in the lift and it goes boom yeah why worry each of us is wearing an unlicensed nuclear accelerator on his back yeah let's get ready switch me on it's a horrible, frightening noise. Yes, and they back away. Well, Ramus yes, steps away from it. Yes, and, like... and it's a brilliant way of saying the real threat here, the ghosts are dangerous, but these guys not yeah. knowing how to work this machinery. Yeah. And that's a thing that everyone understands. Where your parents have said, step back, I'm lighting a barbecue, to keep away from the oven. There's a real sense that the, the science will kill them. And I didn't realise that the end scene where they, they cross the streams to, to deal with Gozer, mm. they had no ending. Mm. and they couldn't work out because the problem with this you must know this from writing action movies and Supernatural anything with that there's no way of turning off the threat You turning on the threat's fun in the yeah, script yeah. turning it off the sky is boiling with aliens yeah. how do you send them all back the thing that always is a problem in Marvel films and yeah. Doctor Who and things yeah. how do you turn them off and they, they came up with well we'll cross the stream we'll, the, our own science will do it it'll invert reality and then they had to go back and insert the don't cross the streams catch line early on because they had no finale. The door swings both ways. We could reverse the particle flow through the gate. How? We'll cross the streams. Excuse me, Egon. You said crossing the streams was bad. Cross the streams. And I think that's <laughs> a lovely example of 
clever script writing, which is it doesn't matter how you finish it because by that point, the audience, if the characters are all built up and the jeopardy's clear, and you save the guys, mm. any ex- yes, you just don't want them to die. Essentially, yeah. so any excuse, yeah. a bit of scientific bullshit. If I know, yeah, they said that earlier on. Mm. That's the secret bit of... It's like a MacGuffin. It's the other secret yeah. thing is, how do you finish this? Well, say at the beginning, don't push that button. Yeah. And at the end, it push that button. Yeah. Mm. Switch off the threat. Mm. It's done in a way in this film that, again, it's delightful. It doesn't feel mechanical. It doesn't feel mm. like they've cheated you. Mm. I felt... Because I felt the threat when they turned the things on, boo! At the end, when they crossed the streams, I was really scared. You're going to endanger us. You're going to endanger our client, the nice lady who paid us in advance before she became a dog. Not necessarily. There's definitely a very slim chance we'll survive. But it's also their, it's their, you know, obviously it's their lives and it's it's New York City and it's uh, humanity is threatened, but it's also their reputations. It's yeah. about their, rep- the, the whole film is about them being petrified about their reputations. Because the know? dean says you're the, a loser. Yeah, and- yeah you're dean, you know, and the EPA guy says, where did you actually get your scientific qualifications <laughs> yeah. and everything everyone is constantly Murray's got too many doctorates for a man who behaves yes. like that I yeah. love the fact that clearly, this is before the internet but he's yeah. got them from somewhere yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and there's, a, there's, a re- there's a really great moment where um, you know, early on in the film he says I'm a scientist and Dana says to him well uh, you don't you don't look like a scientist you act like a chat show host um, which is sort of so damning and then later on when the violinist or the cellist guy the sort of love rival with, said, the, the, with the nasal spray yes he says he says to her later on when they've had an encounter with Murray or who was that guy and she says he's a scientist I like I almost cheered like yeah, watching yeah. it on my own because I was like oh she's she's now invested in this guy who doesn't even believe in himself and I think the whole yeah. film the whole moment on the roof where it's like you know think of the what's the last thing you can think of what's the least threatening thing you can think of this is them at that point being concerned about what people think about them what yeah. the authority figures and what the cool kids think about these the geeks the science club yeah yeah you know we're the science club and we've said that we're brilliant and we have been brilliant for a bit but now we're it's zero hour and actually are we going to be laughed at and are we going to have to you know wet our pants and be walked down you know the main corridor of the school with everyone laughing at us yeah again you know, it's a that's basic what they're worried about children understand and a yeah. whole audience will understand when you're looking at these these films especially these films that have been massively popular and have lived for ages you've got to ask what are they telling the audience and the slightly geeky, probably outsidery audience of the science club, the AV club, are being mm. told, don't worry, New York's going to carry you shoulder high. We were the nerds. We were thrown out of, our, of our, our, uh, our university. No one took us seriously. And at the end of it, we all got together. And at the, when our backs were to the wall, we, I suppose at the end of it, Bill Murray believes mm. and believes in himself. Yeah. And if you're going to, what's odd watching these movies where they're all goofy and they've got special effects in, you go, well, what's the core story? Mm. Where do they start and where do they end? And the only person you can really follow in this is Bill Murray because the other guys just stay the same. Yeah, and you're right. It's it's at the beginning, everyone thinks they're idiots, and at the end of it, yeah, they they, they get. A I chance. love this town. Well, there's, yeah. that, there's that nice line near the front, isn't there? I've worked in the private sector. They expect results. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and you've got and this, yeah. what happens here is that they get tested and they end up with good results. Yeah. you know. Yeah. God, that's it's it's a it's a perfect Reagan story. Is in they yeah. literally <laughs> televised it's, showing their product. It's very much a product of the time, I think. Yeah. In that regard, but it's also it is it is also timeless. You know, and we got a lot of movies of that era. Um, which I would sort of categorise in a similar bracket, have held up for a similar reason. If you look at Breakfast Club and you mm. look at uh, Ferris Bueller and so on, you know these are very, you know, stylistically quite similar movies, and that they're addressing very similar. Sorry, not stylistically, thematically, very similar um, movies, and they're addressing mm. the that, that same thing, which is you know what it is to be essentially the underdog kid 
and yeah. what it is to have a chance to you know weird science is another one what it is to have a ch- what it is to have a chance to not be laughed at for a change and it's yeah. what Superbad did it's it's all it's it's what Apatow has done brilliantly yeah. Revenge yeah. of the yeah. Nerds yeah. Yeah. yeah and uh, that's essentially what Ghostbusters is for all of it for all of its uh, bells and whistles um, which it also happens to do really well you know it, it's grown up filmmaking but it's also just got this very simple you know story at its core. What a perfect place to finish this. Jim Field-Smith, thank you so much. My pleasure. We came, we saw, we kicked its ass.